Hey, Pajamic, how's it going? Hey, Amir, good. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to the uh, non-sycophantic arts podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're, well, we're not we're not unpaid interns. Our boss is not breathing down our neck to promote the uh, current program. This is not a toxic workplace, as outlined in the New York Times. Um, we but, will not uh, end up on uh, what's that Instagram account? Uh, cancel galleries. Cancel art galleries. Cancel There's also cancel gallery. museums. Uh-huh. Um, well, I maybe I. Maybe we should do an episode about that one time. Yeah, actually, we should. Uh, those two accounts. Um, no, you uh, you ruined my intro, which I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say, you're listening to Delicious Dish on NPR. Uh, I'm yeah. Margaret Joe McCullen. <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, give my uh, recipe for sweaty balls later on. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, I wanted to wish you a happy Sukkot. Oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, did you uh, build a sukkah or a tent? I uh, have not. I've been invited to one this past uh, Sunday, but I had to turn the invitation down because I went apple picking in a farmland so near Jersey. <laughs> so cute. Turns out a lot of people had the very same idea <laughs> that same day. Uh, but it was pretty nice. I think, uh, yeah, I got to make an apple pie now. I have like five pounds of uh different apple varieties oh, in nice. my fridge right now yeah what have you been uh, up to well i just wanted to say um the suka like if you just go to any new york uh covid outdoor dining pod oh it's kind basically. of the same thing anyway <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely uh uh i've been good uh i have just been finishing work up for an exhibition it's uh in copenhagen this saturday at oh, Last nice. Resort Gallery. Are you going? Which, yeah, I'm driving tomorrow morning. Uh, I'm driving from here through Berlin up to Rostock and taking a ferry for the first time. A ferry on a ferry. You're you're taking the car <laughs> on the ferry? Yeah, which nice. uh, is kind of exciting, mm-hmm. kind of weird. Uh, it's surprisingly expensive. The ferry? I mean, if you, yeah, if you book two weeks ahead of time, it's cheaper, but... I, I think know, it's like... their way to keep the Germans out. <laughs> <laughs> and rightfully so. The cheap Germans. <laughs> <laughs> you can cut that out later in post-production. Uh, um, so, yeah, yeah. the, the gallery is run by this fellow, Peter Amby. He's very nice. Mm-hmm. He's a handsome straight bear. Interesting. That's a dying art. (laughs) And I, yeah, I'm really excited because I've only been to Copenhagen for basically an evening before uh, when I was in Malmo once in Sweden. And there's a train you can take uh, across the sound that goes to Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. So it'll be nice to go. Uh, And then I've also been finishing this work for uh, a local biennial or a regional biennial, I guess. But I'll tell... I'll tell the listeners more about that next time. What's the Polish word for biennial? Uh, I think it's just biennale, mm-hmm. like like the Italian word. I'm surprised uh, it hasn't been canceled. I feel like a lot of biennials and triennials uh, have been canceled yeah. because of COVID, which no, it's uh, true. N- none of us is really uh, crying over. But uh, <laughs> well, this wait, one what, is uh, what <laughs> was just postponed, like officially. Well, the, well, the Whitney Biennial was pushed back one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? What do we know about that? Who's curating it? What's the uh, what's the theme? Are they I feeling have no idea? Are they feeling sated with the whole sort of uh, what was the uh, what was the unofficial kind of banner for that biennial? Like a minority majority. I honestly can't, I cannot remember anything from the last anything. <laughs> like weren't any you, of the biennials. Weren't you briefly in town for the last biennial? I feel like uh, that, yes, was on I was, our, that was on our agenda, potentially to uh, go see. <laughs> we ended up doing something else instead. Yeah, I think instead of going to see the Whitney Biennial, I guess that was last summer, right? 
when I was there. Oh my god, everything just See, feels it's like, like I ages just, ago. Exactly. I have no concept of time, but also there's uh too many biennials uh which dovetails with my no more biennials movement. <laughs> True. But I feel um, like being being based in Europe you have a uh you have a tsunami, a deluge of uh, way more biennials than uh, what we have here, which is basically the Whitney and then the triennial at the new museum, which could maybe we could uh, touch on later in the recording. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. I think the the thing is that maybe uh, COVID is exposing. Maybe we don't all need to be uh, internationally engaged in every single project or biennial or... Uh, art fair or what have you not that it's like everything should be separated and everyone should just stay in their geographic hub but you know just look at uh, any of those advisors or curators or uh, artists racking up 300,000 air miles a year uh, and I mean especially the last biennial I feel like the it was something that curators sort of took pride in that there were traveling so much to uh you know locate the last of the american artists decamped in either berlin or wherever to uh get them to show in the biennial i feel like if it were uh done during COVID times it would have been way more local yeah no and it's true and and i remember that biennial they made such a a stink about it it's like oh we went all across america and then when you actually looked at the artists in the show it was mostly new york and la artists uh, there were a few artists from Chicago, for example, such as, again, friend of the pod, Brendan Fernandez. Uh, love you, B. Love you, B. Uh, I think there was maybe uh, a Miami artist or something, but it clearly wasn't like a geographical representation of the country, which uh, I think is really ignored in the U.S. I think mm-hmm. in Canada... Uh, that conversation has been prevalent for much longer. Yeah. That diversity is also important in terms of regional diversity and regional voices. That, you know, f- not everyone is in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal in Canada uh, for various reasons. And those other voices should be heard as well. And there's other practices that go on in other regions. And I'm sure that's especially prevalent in the United States since it is such a giant landmass. You know, it's basically like a continent. And there's also all these other kind of far-flung areas, like the different U.S. territories or even Hawaii or Alaska. And I just feel like those things aren't really engaged properly. I mean, at uh, the end of the day, though, uh, to get notice, you have to either be in an adjacent overlapping circle or god knows how i actually just found this article that i remember hyperallergica had uh, posted uh, in june 9th 2019 uh titled how do artists get into the whitney biennial uh pretty sort of a cunty endeavor but efficient uh nevertheless um saying i made a spreadsheet to find out what the participants in the whitney biennial have in common and then it just goes into detail about all the sort of usual suspects as in, uh, you know, overlapping social circles and uh, stuff like that. So I feel like at the end of the day, uh, how creative is the sort of scouting of artists for these uh, purposes is to begin with? Like, not that much. Yeah. And, you know, I think that connects to this uh, topic of privilege that's constantly being excavated. Uh, you know, having a certain social circle or network, that's already something, you know, not everyone is privy to right. for various reasons, once again. And it's like, that's that's the reason why someone, you know, should be engaged with. Right. Uh, but I think, uh, yeah, it's just, I think a lot of curators come with this presupposed idea of what's happening. Mm-hmm. There hasn't actually been kind of this uh, coast-to-coast search or what have you, like some reality show. Right. But it's like, oh, well, uh, people are now making COVID art, so I'm now going to go look for COVID art. But you actually haven't experienced the fact that people have made COVID art. Right. So it's uh, it's like, a, you know, s- fitting square pegs into a round hole Mm -hmm. curation um yeah 
And also then again, I mean, when you're in search of a, a artist that sort of fit a, uh, uh, this identity or that identity, you end up, uh, again, sort of following the breadcrumbs of overlapping circles. I feel like artists, especially outside of the major hubs, uh, you have to be some like extravagant form of a squeaky wheel to have uh, caught the attention of anyone sort of scouting um, artists, which is a much easier thing to uh, accomplish when you're in a big city, the squeaky wheel sort of factor. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, my biggest personal beef forever has been that I always felt like, uh, you know, if you lack in the sort of classic uh, social skills and factors, you're kind of at a disadvantage. And that's absolutely not a disadvantage that you can even uh, speak out about or, you know, lament or uh, consider a, a disadvantage even. It's like not even considered a an issue for you. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, I'm, also, I'm not the son of anyone uh, of notoriety, fame, wealth, or anything like that. I'm just a. Uh, I don't a, have a French banker father. Exactly. I'm just nor a, <laughs> just a, a poor, not poor, but low middle class Israeli kid. Um, my grandparents came from the shtetl, and they're great parents too. And so I'm a very proud sort of the end of a lineage of low-class um, Eastern European trash. Same. And uh, that's why we bond. And that's, why we, that's why we started this podcast. <laughs> exactly. And I think, so I did 23andMe, and it just verified that my parents and their parents and the whole family comes from a very specific uh, uh, region around... Uh, I'm forgetting now. Um, Pinsk. <laughs> Pinsk, yeah, which kind of the borders were shifting back and forth in that region. So at some point it would belong to the Germans and then Poland. It kept exchanging hands. Um, and I think you at some point had told me that your family is not too far from there originally. Yes. So my dad's side of the family is from southeastern Poland and my mom's is from northeastern Poland. And so, you know, the dad side is very close to Pinsk. Like, we're basically cousins. Yeah. But the 23andMe did not show that we're related. Yeah. Maybe it's because the uh, the Ashkenazi gene that you lack. And I'm also pretty sure that my family wasn't Jewish the whole history. I'm sure. There oh, was I'm some sure. Like... <laughs> I mean, I'm you sure. look very Slavic. Thank you. I mean, when I was still living in Berlin and I would take taxis, the drivers would often ask me if I'm Turkish, which I guess in a Berlin context, I don't know why. Maybe it's my my sort of mushy nose. Uh, I think it's the eyes. You think it's the it's, eyes? Yeah, I think it's the eyes. Uh, so you can consult our Instagram thoughts on art. That's thoughts with a zero and do your own <laughs> uh, phrenology analysis of Amir. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, um, well, I took a tw I took a DNA test, and it says I'm 100% Gural, which <laughs> is the mountain peoples of Poland. <laughs> I'm no. just like yeah, just like Elizabeth Warren. I'm a hundred percent that bitch. <laughs> no, but she, I, I it, that that was her words, not mine. <laughs> before I get canceled. Oh. Uh, well that, so I was in the mountains, uh, and maybe people saw on my personal Instagram at Pishcheck that I got that, uh, classic mountain man hat, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I love. You should wear it more often. You should alternate between the Zabar's hat I got you and the mountain man hat. Uh, yeah, it looks like when they make fun of Polish people on the Simpsons and they illustrate this type of folk costume, that's me with like a black a uh, wide-brimmed hat with a feather in it. Uh-huh. So, uh, so my neighbor posted uh, in response to that photo. She's like, wow, a true, you know, mountain dweller at heart. And then I went back to 23andMe, and it shows uh, that I'm most likely from that region, even though that's not actually where my family's from. Mm -hmm. So the DNA test knew. Um, How are you able to weave that into your uh, press release? That is a question. <laughs> Just, Wait, so you're, you're gonna pass through Berlin on your way to uh, Copenhagen? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Berlin, but I'm not stopping because there's a curfew now uh, uh -huh. because there's Corona chaos. Mm -hmm. um, 
If but... only they had a woman leader in Germany. <laughs> and a scientist at that. Oh, my God. Uh, but speaking of uh, continental Europe, mm-hmm. can we please talk about something really important that's been in the news and in our lives? Mm-hmm. Emily in Paris. Oh, yes. So uh, I started watching it on your recommendation. Uh Wait, so who uh, who created that show? Uh, so it was created by Darren Starr. He mm-hmm. he created uh, Sex and the City, Melrose Place, uh, various other TV trash. Wait, you consider it trash? <laughs> who considers it trash? Where are you <laughs> reading this? <laughs> not trash. I love Sex and the City. Uh, I mean, looking back at it, growing up, being in high school in Israel, when when it aired, like I clearly, distinctly remember having such a like it felt like a formative moment watching it. It felt transgressive, transgressive almost. Uh, I mean, back then I was still kind of sucking on American teeth in terms of culture, and so it really felt like just hitting. It just hit the spot constantly. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I remember when it was on, like uh, Canadian cable TV. Uh, I'm sure it was slightly delayed or something from HBO because we didn't have HBO back then. But mm-hmm. uh, I remember being at a friend's house. It was like eighth grade maybe. And I don't know, we were flipping past. It was kind of not a party, but you know, a get together for that age. Mm-hmm. And it was the episode where it's like Miranda and the guy and the finger in the butt. Right. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> and then I remember this guy, Darcy, who was like a hot mess uh-huh. and like kind of hot. I wonder what he looks like now. He kept scr- screaming rim job. Oh my God. <laughs> like none of us had ever heard that. Do you remember the episode where uh, Charlotte, when she was still working at the gallery, they were mounting this photographer's show who does these like pictures of women in drag? Oh, oh you mean the new Cindy Sherman works? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, basically. I mean, yeah. I I love that episode, but it like it felt like tail end of transgression when that uh, episode aired. What year was that? Nineteen ninety nine or something like yeah, that. Something and like meanwhile, that. Metro Pictures has a new show that just looks like not even like an ironic sort of take on that. Yeah, it's uh, Cindy Sherman doing her first uh, male transformation, and I believe they're referring it. Referring to it as male drag or something, yeah. Or and maybe I mean, the articles are, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I uh, so I went to MoMA yesterday and I t- kind of toured the contemporary art galleries and I was sending you all these pictures of those, you know, seminal uh, Cindy Sherman uh, pictures and I was telling you how much I love those and but I also feel like that was sort of the kind of the peak of that and perhaps it's also sort of indicative of other boomer art that was kind of hitting a high note at a certain point and perhaps that should have been the end of it because it was just kind of running on an inertia that just kind of exhausts itself at this point like I don't know what value there is in seeing any new work by Cindy Sherman except for you know the market sort of drive to keep those works coming oh exactly uh yeah I mean I think those original untitled works and the film stills and all those things are amazing. Uh, and obviously other works later, but like you said, it's this market inertia that propels everything. Uh, Madonna helped her in the nineties when she really to what extent when she paid basically to produce a show at MoMA, Mm uh, probably like Cindy Sherman's first big museum show or first MoMA show. I believe Mm -hmm. it was in 1996. Uh, and in the materials for it, it says something like produced by Madonna or, you know, like presented by Madonna. Like there's some acknowledgement of that in a coded way of her basically making the show happen, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's understandable. It's like you have work that you believe in, but of course, Madonna, our leader, we stand Madonna on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, She's a shrewd businesswoman and, you know, it's, uh, she's very good at magnifying her holdings. So it's like the Cindy Sherman work she has. She has a, uh, you know, a show at MoMA. Uh, the Tamara Delimpitska works, 
uh, then get kind of reinterpreted into various music videos of hers and are brought, you know, maybe to a broader cultural forefront. I think it's all connected with her. <laughs> right. I'm trying to find this post that a friend of the pod, it's time to stop now on Instagram, had once made about this interview that Cindy Sherman uh, gave to The Guardian. I guess it was last year or two years ago, and she made some really, like, like fiscally insensitive comments about uh wait let me find this i mean she's essentially a staunch capitalist at this point which kind of dilutes the whole kind of feminist uh vigor from the work and like it just you know when i see those shows those those new works of her it kind of just i just want to ignore it and just relish and enjoy that sort of the seminal debut works that are still very strong but like i just don't see the the power or the strength in any of the new stuff God, yeah where is this post? no i agree Sorry. but but uh as we said i think that's across the board and that's the interesting thing about visual arts i think in other media and kind of creative fields you're uh you're as good as your last hit you know you're uh a pop star or a musician or a filmmaker and you're still expected to kind of push forward and give us, I don't know, something new or something that's not just kind of a constant loop of the last 20 years of your career. But in I mean, the visual I, arts, that's a fetishize. It's like you're frowned upon if you're not constantly doing the same thing. I don't understand uh, what their excuse is. Like in any Leibowitz's case, I understand it because, you you know, facing a bankruptcy multiple times, she has to keep producing and even like commercialize even further. And like in her case, it kind of lays bare the, the like ugly truth of of this like race to the bottom to sustain a certain uh, economic uh, level for yourself but like I don't understand what like uh, like these other boomer artists who I'm sure at some point feel like okay I clearly don't have anything new to say or anything refreshing why even bother I wish the system would be a little more accommodating to these just taking hiatus hiatuses or kind of rum springas where you just don't create <laughs> anything um, yeah true or create something but you don't have to be showing it or just being like pushy about it yeah exactly like uh here i'm finding one post a friend of the pod uh, at it's time to post now made about uh Lori Lori simmons who disclaimer i know the family is controversial but i love her and i love her daughter and her other children uh and just to go back not to not the godfather though not the godfather and just oh my god we'll get to him uh <laughs> but just going back to my moma visit yesterday i mean laurie simmons again gorgeous seminal pivotal feminist work uh the early uh photography work with the uh you know with the household objects and the, the house on top of the legs and everything beautiful yeah. but then again like the current work like why do we need to see that especially all the like the portraits of your daughter and your son and all that stuff unnecessary yeah yeah just make space for other people because that's the thing it's uh it you know the art world's like a battery mm-hmm <laughs> Are you, is that is that Trump's battery theory <laughs> about why he doesn't work out? <laughs> Look, I've been going on about ba- the battery theory, my own theory for ages now. Uh-huh. Uh, what is it? I, well, no, I think not. I have my personal uh, battery theory, you know, but we'll get that to another time. But no, it's uh, there's only so much capacity in the art world. Like, yeah, there's uh, in infinite space online and on Instagram or whatever, but there is a finite number of museums and institutions and galleries and off spaces, etc. So, uh, you know, if you're hogging the, the like four month exhibition window at an institution, uh, as someone who's like a multimillionaire many times over, who's like had all accolades, who's very rightfully respected, you don't need to be having shows constantly. 
but don't you just, think it's don't you think it's more of a hogging of attention rather than actual uh, space for opportunities? Because I feel like yes, there's there is a finite uh, amount of museums and institutions, but at the same time, there's so many other shows that are gorgeous, important, uh, impactful that. It's not that you don't hear about, but they just don't get the attention because the PR machine is just not oh, as a, uh, greasy. Definitely. But I think they're just uh, perfectly intertwined that, you know, if there's uh, a Wolfgang Tillman's show, it takes up space, it takes up attention, it takes up resources. You know, that opportunity could be afforded to someone else who actually needs the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I, that's, you know, I'm just using him as an example. I think that's kind of any artist in that sphere. It's like, you've made a lot of money, you've made a very important contribution uh, artistically. Just give someone else some space. How, let me let me challenge you on that. How would you define or try to convince me on Wolfgang Tillman's uh, long-lasting impact? Why, why is he <laughs> important? I mean, personally, his work is not important to me, but I think uh, in terms of like 90s photography, you know, this, uh, his aesthetic, this whole fashion thing, et cetera, like mm-hmm. it's intertwined. But at the same time, it's kind of like Ryan McGinley, but in a different way. And I could care less about Ryan McGinley's work. How so, many times have you been exposed to Wolfgang Tillmans doing things you would rather not see at clubs <laughs> in Berlin? That is, the, that is the true question. <laughs> um, uh. I, I just personally think that we should just... Uh, we should put in place the boomer threshold test where any artist, regardless of age, if their sort of uh, sensibilities kind of take a turn towards the boomer, I think they should just sort of be retired. And that, again, like boomer sensibilities, the lack of humor, for example, such as with uh, what's that um, what's that meme account, Jerry Gagosian. Oh, like, God. How, how old is she? Is she our age? I mean, it's questionable because some Instagram posts, I'm like, oh, Jerry Gagosian's our age. And then other ones, I'm like, she's 55. I have no idea. Yeah. And I mean, let's just say for for uh, for argument's sake, she's our age. But like the just the humor, the humor level is like she's boomer. Like in her 70s boomer. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. saying. And guess what? My dad is a proper boomer. He's 63 and is actually funny. And should have a stand-up special on a Cinemax or something. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, who who would you consider some uh, some people of uh, notoriety in the art world with uh, boomer sensibilities that you would rather uh, be retired? Okay, well, Jerry Gagosian is uh, not funny. Everyone, please unfollow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I I just, I'm. Like I'm not bitchy about those things. If th- if something is truly funny, I crack up. Like I have yes. no qualms about it. But if something's not funny, I'm not gonna like contort my- contort myself to laugh. But I yeah no I think there's a a lack of sense of humor uh, from a lot of people in the art world, and I think it just kind of gets worse as they age. Mm-hmm. Because the ones that we're aware of are the successful ones, and with accolade success being in a bubble etc etc i think people i don't know aren't funny it's like i uh, mean i think to a certain chill out yeah i think to a certain extent not being funny is maybe the result of just this business having such an extreme amount of pretense kind of tied to it and like between every show kind of being thought through with these really like heavy handed like either political measures or like how can we impact the social you know discourse and stuff like that it just kind of neutralizes in advance any any true criticism or punch and people are just like humorless yeah i think and also just like uh the way a lot of people socially interact is so humorless it's uh like uh you know a well-known berlin dealer added me on Facebook as a friend mm-hmm. and then you know half a year later or whatever ran into him in his booth at an art fair at Art Cologne and I said oh hey and I was with a friend who knew him I said oh hi I'm Pashemik and he was very cold and rude to me and I said oh you added me on Facebook and it was just like he wanted to kill me basically was his kind of demeanor yeah. it's like 
why the fuck are you adding me on Facebook and then being a bitch about it? Well, Germans Germans are known to be a Teflon for uh, (laughs) social interactions. They will will admit to that. We're not just being bitchy about it. No. And um, after what our people have suffered through, we're allowed to make fun of them. Yeah, our people sure have suffered. We do share that in common. Yes. Our bond. Yeah. Uh, I would pull up some, like, Jerry Saltz examples, but I think uh, I muted him or blocked him. I have to log into (laughs) my dog's Instagram account, Kasha Varnishke, (laughs) who was just prominently featured this week on, from now on, Friend of the Pod Artnet, (laughs) on on their listicle uh, of artists' dogs. Uh, So if you would like, go ahead and follow Kasha Kasha Varnishka on Instagram. It's Kasha underscore Varnishka. Uh, Brooklyn's most famous bulldog as it stands. Still not a lot of followers, but maybe we can change that together. And uh, yeah, I want to actually congratulate you and uh, Jordan and Kasha on that. And shout out to Artnet News, our new friends. I will say, though, uh, Artnet News is my... uh, is my personal New York Post for <laughs> for art news? I mean, that's the the two sources I go online to every morning for some like gossip and unhinged <laughs> reporting. Well, I think that's how this podcast started because for the last I don't know how many years you send me articles. <laughs> I mean, we, I yeah, we moon face at them. I just can't tell. Like some of the reporting is clearly truly serious and there's a lot of research that goes into it i i personally benefit intellectually from some of that stuff but then yeah other stuff is like it's just i cannot believe what i'm reading <laughs> well it's it's amazing because you very clearly see the split between the two editorial kind of bureaus mm-hmm. uh new york and berlin where a uh, friend of the pod kate brown has amazing hard-hitting journalism uh healy pearlson as well um she's my cousin i know i love mm-hmm. that she's wonderful um so there's like that side which is like oh i actually learned something it's smart you're actually covering news and then the new york side is like a shit show often yeah <laughs> it's like and i don't mean the dog article but i mean uh things like uh like spotted borna samak was eating a sandwich <laughs> Yeah, and also with like social distancing now and everything, of course that sort of kind of uh, has been watered down. But like, oh my god, I don't like Lucien uh, Denizen, Petra Collins. It's just like uh, it's like an algorithm created these articles. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! And also, although the like live auction reportings, I just saw the Matthew Wong at a live Christie's auction oh went for uh, three point seven million dollars. Way to honor the very short-lived life and the legacy of a POC on the spectrum artists. Like, what, can you maybe explain auctions to me? Why is that so twisted, and why should I care in terms of how does it relate? To our practices as artists uh well i think it all boils down to the fact that uh there isn't one art world there's many circles that converge into various venn diagrams and mm-hmm. and i think this aspect of art as an asset uh just kind of overtakes everything mm-hmm. and it's like a black hole that's just constantly <laughs> growing and swallowing everything up. Uh, I just I just don't understand at what point are you supposed to or you take pride in you know, your work having kind of been torn away from you and has been commodified into a value traded asset. Like how how is that <sighs> anything? Why is that of any meaning? Or how does it like how does it even relate to your own practice in terms of like affecting it, changing it? Like Well, so the thing is when let's say okay, let's say you're an artist who's been working for ten years and you have shows here and there at commercial galleries and you're selling or not selling, and a work will only get to auction if someone 
has the three D's in their life, death, uh, divorce, or debt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what that's how the saying goes. And so it's like, okay, I have these paintings I bought or whatever, whatever works. I need to offload them. So I'm going to go to an auction house. That happens. Or someone's just going to be like a market manipulator Mm -hmm. and be like, oh, I'm going to put this up at auction and maybe I'll get somebody that I know to bid on it Mm -hmm. and create a market for this artist. Uh, So the other works I own by that artist increase in value like there's so little transparency in the auction world that that's totally possible um so it's like the whole zombie abstraction thing that was happening like 2013 to 2015 or whatever that was its peak Mm -hmm. it's like there were people going up at auction who had had like one show two shows it's not like they had a moma show or a whitney show they had a show at like Bill Brady Contemporary Arts in Kansas, like a, Mm -hmm. you know, a purveyor of that kind of work. And suddenly they're at auction. Their work is, you know, like $300,000. And I think any rational person should question why that's at $300,000. Like, why is there this market? It's completely arbitrary. I mean, how how do you square the circle of, let's say, a work being of uh, social justice value or whatever on the one hand, and then on the other hand, on the uh, on the uh, on the auction side of it, the uh, not just the artist's work, but also the spirit of it and its significance being commodified in such a extreme, violent capitalist environment? Like that is something, just. I'm personally unable to square that circle. Like, how can you, as an artist, live with that? Well, I think it's uh, difficult for a lot of artists when that happens because there are artists now, you know, the whole zombie abstraction thing died, and now there are artists who are being engaged in different contexts. So, having institutional shows, having commercial success, uh, artists from traditionally unrepresented. Um, backgrounds and communities and you know out of their control this insanity happens and of course galleries say like oh we don't want it going up at auction you know we're you know that's bad for the artists and it's like that's true but on the other hand they're loving it and they won't say it because you know when like the Chabalala self work appears at auction and goes for insane amounts the galleries then get to increase the price, the primary market price. And that price isn't the same as what's happening at auction, but you know, something that was maybe $50,000 for a painting could now be like 150,000 because this auction data backs it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I mean, such a, uh, yeah. Oh no. I, I mean, was just gonna say, for, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's, and it's such an opaque, system and it's so ambiguous and uh in july i was at my first auction which no one told me about Mm -hmm. which is kind of crazy too that you know somebody has a work of yours puts it up at auction and it was a christie's hong kong auction and i didn't find out until weeks later and that's because uh brother of the pod bart told me (laughs) And I hope your work didn't uh, didn't land in hands that uh, funnel funds to uh, Uyghur concentration camps, oh just like the Mulan movie production. Let it be really? known. Yes, that was the oh. whole thing. Oh, that yes. Okay, yes, you're right. No, I know. They actually filmed it like next door to a concentration camp. God, that's insane. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then it's like who? It's a Disney movie, but also it's like who is funding that and making that right. happen too? It's like if you're you know, an executive producer giving a bunch of money on a movie, like you have input in that too. It's not just Disney. Um, Uh, What I want to know, and if somebody could explain it to me, I mean, I'm as a white sort of cis person and an Israeli on top of everything am sitting this one out, but I would still love to know why it makes sense for a select few and at a arbitrary sort of selection of artists of 
you know, disadvantaged and disenfranchised backgrounds to be sort of plucked out of the crowd and be made millionaires? Like, maybe you can explain the long-term value in uplifting the whole sort of crowd by doing that? Like, I'm talking about selective, like, you know, rising stars. Uh, It just seems to me like it's not necessarily a case of the rising tide lifting all boats. Oh, no, definitely. I think it's, uh, I mean, this is something that comes up on uh, cancel art galleries on the Instagram account that, you know, there are galleries and institutions who are trying to really, uh, sorry to use the word whitewash, Mm -hmm. but, you know, kind of all the wrongs that they've been doing for so long and are still doing and you know, racism that happens within those systems and institutions. And it's kind of just like a obfuscation, just like a mm-hmm. smoke screen of, right. It's like, Oh no, actually, uh, no, we're progressive. Like we just had, we just had a, a queer black artist. And it's like, right. yeah, but then your entire staff is white and you treat people like shit. So, right. I also kind of feel like uh, if you truly want to implement a form of just socialism, you would sort of set a cutoff where, you know, artists would rise in fame and uh, financial success. And then there would just be a cutoff because at some point I feel like once you pass a certain threshold, you're a part of the system (laughs) as a very wealthy artist who's a benefactor of, you know, money coming to you from sources that are, uh, you know, wealth crime related to a certain extent, like how much can you still sort of hold the pretense and preach to social and justice changes when you're uh, sucking at the teat of wealth criminality? Oh yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, it's like when there's a, yeah, some like woke Barbara Kruger text that everyone's posting and it's like, well, where's that money coming from? Right. You know, like this uh, illustrious career. (laughs) Well, I'm glad uh, I was able to establish two criteria for cutoffs. One, when you've reached (laughs) boomer sensibilities. And the other, when you've started making X amount of money from your art. That's when you should just be retired or retire gracefully and just shut up and let other people do the talking because it corrupts. And as Barbara Kruger says... Um, abuse of co- of power comes at no surprise. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I just don't need another Wolfgang Tillman's poster campaign about an EU election. It's like, oh, this uh, trade union that enables, uh, you know, neoliberal free markets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or for that matter, any campaign that comes out of Europe that touches on American politics like I'm vehemently against the globalization of localized local American issues like your countries are committing enough atrocities just like focus on that perhaps well yeah it's like the uh, Louis Vuitton show yesterday that had had, uh, sweaters that said vote on them and Mm -hmm. it's like really a French fashion house is releasing these garments that say vote Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time they're in stores, the election will have been over. And I get that the U.S. is, you know, a global player. But why do we need to be constantly kind of swallowed by this inertia of that like whirlpool of insanity? And also, can I see the financial ledgers of Louis Vuitton from the 30s and the 40s? <laughs> Oh, just like the top 10 uh, richest German families from that uh, like top 1,000 list that came out a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And then when you look closely at the top 10 names, they all made money in the Holocaust. Way to go. Yeah, of course. And then for, for a change, we both read that uh, article that came, uh, came out in the Times a couple of days ago entitled Black Germans Say It's Time to Look Inward and essentially goes into the history of uh, black discrimination in Germany and also into the sort of more deeper history of uh, Germany's involvement in genocide and colonialism in, uh, in Africa. 
And for a surprising change, the New York Times doesn't just, uh, um, you know, publish dispatches from like the local Australian new coffee shop that just opened in <laughs> in Neukölln, but for a change is doing some research about Germany's like ongoing dark chapter and involvement in discrimination and racism. Yeah. And but where where was that article published in the uh, style section? Yeah, in the style <laughs> section. And uh, as I said to you yesterday, I was shocked. It's like in the style section and it's the best thing that they've written about Germany in years and probably one of the best written articles, period, that actually was informative mm-hmm. and wasn't like kissing Germany's ass. Right. And and it's like, insane. Like everyone needs to read this article. I posted, on it on, uh, posted it on Instagram yesterday because... It's just mind-blowing that it's 2020 and you have this, you know, everyone's so obsessed with, like, memes about, like, Angela Merkel and the coronavirus response because she's a scientist. Or the welcoming and, of a, uh, refugees and immigrants a few years ago. Yeah. Or or uh, even just a few weeks ago, it was like, yeah, go off, Germany. You're taking in those refugees. And it's like, it was 1,200 refugees because... Everyone else died in a refugee campfire. And then there were people like living in shacks and there's like tens of thousands of refugees. And it's just like this constant like reality distortion field of what's actually happening here and in the EU as a whole. So the thing with this article is that it goes into the interior minister, Horst Seehofer, uh, who believes that there's no, uh, you know, systemic racism in the country, uh, that it's not possible that the police is racist because it's against the Constitution, which is like the most German response possible. Again, you're not even allowed to insult uh, police officers in Germany. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Or other people. Um, (laughs) Which is wild because the the whole cultural mentality you just want to like shake them and call them something (laughs) but and then to the point that you know this uh writer this woman of color who was kind of parodying what's happening uh she was threatened by him with a lawsuit Mm -hmm. it's just like this article goes into so much insanity and you can't believe this happening and then so just to put this to the forefront it's like recently all of these basically like ultra right-wing violent terror cells were exposed in various police departments and in like their version of the CIA. So, mm-hmm. And like, and this other article you sent me went on about like how there were intelligence reports about uh, kind of what China was doing in Germany and, you know, things like that being buried. It's like this country's out of control. Yeah. And I think the reason why it was published in the uh, style section of the New York Times is because this is uh, revolving around artists' actions that took place in Germany. So originally when the uh, George Floyd protests started here in the States and then started bleeding over to other European countries, I was kind of scratching my head and wondering if it's another one of those cases of the American export, the cultural export that just kind of uh, performs a function, I think, of... Uh, taking away focus from what's happening in those countries. But then this article kind of brought it against a sharp relief that there is, in fact, a good reason why those uh, protests uh, started in Germany. And I'm reading here that artists have worked to bring visibility to Germany's non-white populations. And there's all these projects that kind of try to contextualize it in a cultural way for the German people to realize what is happening in their country. And we were talking about it yesterday, how there's this, you know, culture of remembrance in Germany, especially in the context of the of the Holocaust and uh, Jewish uh, monuments. But all the while, there's all this history of German uh, colonial genocide in Africa, and school kids aren't even taught about those things, which yeah. is insane. Yeah, they're not taught about it. The Germany has never apologized for, you know, colonialism or its involvement in the slave trade. Mm-hmm. And again, it's 2020. You kind of think, OK, if, uh, you know, they were colonizing Namibia and uh, created 
actually the precursor to the Holocaust there. Yeah. Uh, you know, concentration camps in Namibia and doing ethnic cleansing that they would apologize at this point. Yeah, the, perma- the permanent excuse of uh, we've lived through, you know, Stasi mentality and collection of information on our citizens and ratting out each other. So we're forever will not do it again. Well, this sort of is not an excuse for not keeping track of statistics of all these atrocities yeah. that are happening under your nose in your own country. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they in Germany, it says in the article that they don't keep track of uh you know, they have no figures on, like, the race of the citizens. And it's like, sorry, whether you like it or not, you would need those statistics in a census because then you can figure out social programming. You can mm-hmm. figure out, you know, healthcare needs. You can figure out all of these functions of society. It's not about tying an individual's name to a race in a database, mm-hmm. but you should still have an, uh, an idea. And... They don't want to do that because then they'll actually have to confront that there is systemic racism. Um, But then they can just use the usual excuses of, oh, well, you know, uh, the Holocaust, oh, uh, the DDR, the Stasi, this and that. And again, just like push off the responsibility of what they should be doing for their citizens. Mm hmm. I just find it interesting in uh, Germany's case, and we'll see how it plays out, because there does seem to be a focus now on, uh, I'm seeing that Haus der Kultur und der Welt has uh, commissioned a few uh, black and brown um, artists to, you know, put together a program that tackles those issues. I would be interested in seeing how this kind of plays out. Uh, Berlin, to begin with, is very much like the the major hubs in the States, is much more open-minded, liberal, and progressive. Uh I don't know if there's an appetite and thirst for that in the greater Germany to sort of understand and learn more about its history in that context, but it's definitely a a very good start, I think. Yeah. Okay. So can we go back to Emily in Paris now? Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I just, we really need to talk about this. It's It's like everyone's talking about it. We just watched it. There was an amazing Days Digital article dissecting the fashion today. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my first takeaway about the fashion is it's uh, insane that, okay, so Patricia Field was the costume designer for this. She's famous. She also did, you know, Sex and the she City. She was on Sex and the City, yeah. Yeah. And she did the costumes there and she did it for the movies. And so the movies were like, what, 2005, 2007, around then, right? Or like. Here's a person without boomer sensibilities. Yes, she is not boomer sensibilities. She's amazing. So she also did Devil Wears Prada, one of our favorite films. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy how it's like uh, 15 years later, the same looks basically. It's a houndstooth, newsboy caps, and monochrome looks. Mm -hmm. And then there's like a, a moment where she wears hood by air. Oh, really? I feel like there's a... When she oh, you gets, haven't gone there yet. <laughs> I feel like when she gets to Paris, there's a lot of... It feels like a lot of like pumpkin spice latte looks. Totally. Uh, which I like. Uh, and of I also course. told you, I mean, it was shot in Paris, but it just it might as well have been shot on a soundstage in Hollywood. <laughs> it just looks so fake. It looks almost like uh, Baz Luhrmann, like CGI level on Moulin Rouge with all the totally. like, aggressive camera tilts and swipes. Yeah, and like aggressive lighting of the mm-hmm. you know the scenery, the wet pavement that they're you know fire hosing down before every take, and and all the French people are just they're not like they're caricatures in ways that I would suggest maybe even be a little racist. Like most of the office people are like <laughs> lacking charm or any sexiness. But what's the boss's name? The lady Sylvie. Oh, Sylvie. Oh, she's amazing. She's my spiritual she, crack uh, yes. guide. <laughs> Mar- Martha's out. She's the new spiritual crack guide. For yeah, this especially podcast. when she's working on that uh, Vajon uh, pill where fucking uh, Brigitte Macron <laughs> stand in is shot from the back. Retweeting oh, that was her. so good. That was so good. Um, yeah, Sylvie's amazing. I love how it's just like a tale of like office like workplace bullying. 
which she uh, which she totally deserves because she tries to and she keeps being called out for trying to totally. import her aggressive American values. Yeah, and it's she like just stop being colonial, you basic bitch. <laughs> yeah, and then there's that one episode where uh, they they do a photo shoot for that perfume uh, one perfume, and it's called the episode's called Sexy or Sexist. <laughs> and uh basically the whole episode could have not taken place in america because there's just so much sexual offense i will say and like i was texting you that if like any hr american hr staff would watch <laughs> staff would have watched that episode they would have just convulsed and like had a conniption totally yeah it's uh sh- and then every <laughs> again the <laughs> sorry i can't stop laughing the the uh cliche stereotypes depicted in there it's like oh every time she has an interaction with a man she's being sexually harassed because mm-hmm. that's uh, apparently the only thing french people know how to do yeah yeah and um, it just it just supposedly sets the stage for the strong uh powerful american girl to just assert herself and uh, yeah she's gonna be a down. girl boss and she'll be uh yeah season two she's gonna shut it down um, I love the perfume daddy. Oh, sorry. Oh, totally. He looks like that guy from the Devil Wears Prada, the, uh... Christian, the writer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I also ask you if season two is gonna switch to Berlin and she's gonna be, uh, sent there to convince the <laughs> local company to stop using a non-serif font and switch to something <laughs> more lively and edgy. <laughs> I feel like the cultural clash is going to be even bigger and stronger over there. <laughs> she goes to Barakai once and becomes a mess and is in a K-hole. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Tr- tries to reach out to some colleagues after uh, 4 p.m. only to find out that they stop working. <laughs> <laughs> that they've turned off her... Day. They've turned off their phones and emails and unplugged oh their God. routers at home. I actually remember that when I was still working in an office in Berlin, they would, they would do that actually. <laughs> yeah. So everybody go, go ahead and switch to Netflix and watch uh, Emily in Paris. And uh, if you have any, uh, any reviews, opinions or any, uh, suggestions, you can, uh, you can submit them in our hot tip line. Yeah. That's thoughts on art at gmail.com. And I feel like we'll have to talk about this again when you finish the season and oh, then yeah, sorry, cliffhanger. <laughs> Oh, it's like an insane cliffhanger. It's bigger than Dallas. It's like oh, bigger really? than Who Shot Jr. I'm just interesting. Just, yeah, there's no there's no murder capers, but it's major and huge, and you're gonna love it. Um, oh, What's and there's the also French word for cliffhanger. <laughs> cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. Uh, also, but um, did you get to the part where they go to the gallery for the opening? Uh, no, not yet. Okay, so we're going to talk about that next episode. You have to finish the yeah. season. Yeah, it's like like every good Darren Star moment, mm-hmm. there has to be contemporary art on screen, which, yeah. uh, as we know, always falls very flat because as much as the art world likes to convince itself that it's sexy and dynamic, it actually isn't. So... Do you know that actually featuring a living or known artist's work in these TV or movie productions adds to the insurance value of the whole production? And so there's like placing those works is something that it's is in the benefit of the production. So if you ever see like famous works of art uh, in shows or in movies, that's there for not just, you know, cult and, um, um, artistic reasons, but there's actually like insurance things behind it. Just like the Alex Katz in Devil Wars Prada in Miranda Priestley's townhouse. True. <laughs> um, have you seen, uh, maybe we can finish up with any uh, recent art impressions of yours. Have you seen any good shows recently? Any bad shows in person or online? Oh, God. Um, I will think, but tell me about yours. Uh, I recently saw a really good show at Alexander Berggruns on the Upper East Side. It's a double show. I apologize. I forget the other artist's name, but the show I went to see was Ted Gall's show, who's a really great, uh, almost on the cusp of um, abstract painting, but there's these like objects that kind of veer the work into impressionist 
very subtle, beautiful moments. I love his work. He also makes his own frames, and that's my soft spot. Oh, nice. Yeah. I I should learn some basic skills and make some frames. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're pretty handy with all the uh, with all the manufacturing you have going on in your home. Oh, thank you. I did just get a wood lathe. So if anyone wants to buy some wooden bowls or plates, hit me up. Um, is that is that driftwood? I wish it's it's hard to find driftwood here. Uh huh. Even at the sea, I didn't see any. <laughs> Maybe on your ferry ride, you could get some driftwood. <laughs> Bring that net. Okay, so uh, a good show I saw. It was online only, unfortunately, because I've been trapped in my house since our last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it's friend of the pod, Divya Mera. Uh, she has a show up at the Mackenzie Art Gallery right now which is a museum in Regina, Saskatchewan in Canada. Um, please check it out online. It's Mackenzie, M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E dot art. Um, she has these amazing inflatable sculptures. There's a inflatable Taj Mahal. Uh, mm-hmm. And then she famously the- made that Edward Said uh, Orientalism inflatable. Exactly. And I was just going to mention that. I posted that on Instagram last year. I saw it at Mm -hmm. Art Toronto and it's actually in the show. So it's uh, Edward Said's ornamentalism. Orientalism. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm a mess. That was such a nice time we had in Toronto, even though the city, I'm sorry, don't cancel me, is boring as hell. Yeah, exactly. But we did have a nice time and I was glad that I got to see that work of Divya's, which was a total surprise because I didn't know it would be there. Uh, So it's part of the Mackenzie show. And I mean, it is hilarious. It's like a giant inflatable, you know, uh, paperback copy of Edward Said's Orientalism. Uh, Yeah. And there's other works in the show. And I also saw the inflatable Taj Mahal, Taj Mahal, which she had uh, produced in India uh, at a show at the Winnipeg Art Gallery uh, in Canada. So Amazing. yeah, I wish I wish I could see it in person, but check it out online. I'm going to hit the uh, Whitney, I think, soon in the Guggenheim. Maybe I can report back from my, uh, from my uh, travels. Amazing. I can't wait. Cool. All right. And we uh, can wrap it up. We can wrap it up. It's been a fun time. And uh, mm-hmm. see you next week. See ya. Bye. Bye.